The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Immovable object meets unstoppable force. This is Thursday, May 23rd, 2019. Thank you for supporting independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. It could be a long, hot summer, and we're not talking about climate change or a weather forecast. A long, hot summer, in the metaphorical sense, is a summer filled with tension and anger and the threat of racial violence. The Russian government is refocusing its ongoing unanswered attack on the U.S. to incite more division, more demonstrations, more civil disobedience, and, if they can swing it, more violence. They can only succeed if we allow it to happen. Documents obtained by NBC News reveal a broader attack on the U.S., apparent documents from a Russian billionaire who was indicted by special counsel Robert Mueller for other influence operations in this country. The documents provided by a Russian opposition group show the Kremlin hopes to cash in on the division that it amplified in the U.S. by helping to get Trump into the White House. Russia is also planning to interfere with the 2020 election, and there are signs that's already begun, while the president continues to fail to uphold his oath to defend the U.S. and continues his refusal to retaliate against this hostile foreign attack. Russia hopes to make the existing divisions in this country even wider and to throw more fuel on the fire. The exposed documents show Russia hopes to recruit for its expanded attack low-income African Americans who've done time behind bars, as well as members of organized crime and gangs, and those who've been part of, quote, radical black movements. The documents say these Americans should be recruited to participate in, quote, civil disobedience actions and to destabilize the internal situation in the U.S. The Russian oligarch's proposal includes a map of the United States with a massive chunk of the states highlighted, specifically the Deep South and Texas. So are these things that will be or things that might be? Russia will only succeed if America allows it. The one thing we cannot do is wait until it's too late. And that is true of so many things, including our other pressing problem, a crisis that threatens the structure of the government formed by some very thoughtful founding fathers. This is why we can't have nice things. It was supposed to have been a meeting about improving the nation's infrastructure, and it could use some improvement. The next time you drive over a bridge, ask yourself if it's one of the 56,000 bridges in the U.S. in need of repair. And don't even ask about the pipes that carry your drinking water and your sewage. And know that your next pothole is part of our crumbling infrastructure. So it was supposed to have been a meeting yesterday morning in the White House about fixing that stuff and creating jobs in the process. Pelosi and Schumer of the House would meet with Trump to make more progress in an area upon which they all agree. But Trump went into the meeting angry. He'd already spent the morning tweeting madly about the congressional investigation swirling around him. Presidential harassment, he screamed in all caps. And he'd just seen Nancy on TV saying that no one is above the law and that she believes the president is engaged in a cover-up. How to do cover-ups, snapped Trump, who abruptly ended the meeting saying there would be no deal on fixing those roads and bridges until the House stopped investigating him. In other words, good luck with that pothole and that bridge and your drinking water and your sewer, most of which are decades old. There will be no immediate national effort on the infrastructure plan the president and Democratic leaders love because Trump wants to stop a pursuit of truth, law, and justice. 
It was quite a tantrum, apparently. Trump walked into a White House conference room 15 minutes late for the meeting without any handshakes or any other acknowledgement of other people in the room. He accused Pelosi of saying bad things about him in a three-minute rant, whereupon he turned on his heels and left without giving the Democrats a chance to respond. All of that in a meeting that lasted just three minutes. Quoting House Leader Chuck Schumer, to watch what happened in the White House would make your jaw drop. Quoting a Michigan lawmaker who was present, Trump, quote, said it was over, that he wasn't going to do infrastructure or anything else until the investigations are over. In other words, until the investigations stop, Trump is refusing to do his work, refusing to be president. He's shooting himself in the foot here since he'll need Chuck and Nancy to pass his new trade deal to replace NAFTA. Both Nixon and Clinton found agreement with their Congresses in the middle of their impeachments, but Trump claimed he cannot work under these circumstances. Both Pelosi and Schumer wondered aloud if the president knew he could never sell the $2 trillion plan to the Republican Senate or if he even had a plan of his own. Trump then marched into the Rose Garden for a tirade for reporters matched only by his fiercest Twitter rants. It was a staged event planned long before the ambush meeting with Pelosi and Schumer. It was a pre-staged show, complete with placards and flyers declaring no collusion, no obstruction, staged against the advice of his aides precisely because of the paranoia and panic it portrayed. Trump argued that lawmakers cannot investigate and legislate at the same time, even though the Founding Fathers believed they could and gave them exactly those two tasks. Trump scolded reporters, telling them, honestly, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves for the way you report it so dishonestly. I pray for the President of the United States, Pelosi said later, adding, I pray for the United States of America. For well over two years now, Americans who paid attention have witnessed widespread lawbreaking by this president. They were told to wait for the Mueller investigation. And when the Mueller report was released, its conclusions were twisted by an attorney general hired for exactly that purpose, and then they were repeated as truth by Fox News and others until those twisted conclusions were accepted as fact. Americans who had been paying attention to the bigger picture, meanwhile, were told to wait again, this time for the congressional investigations. And when the president and his people stonewalled those investigations and flagrantly violated legal subpoenas, many Americans were angry and wondered why we'd already waited so long to impeach a clearly impeachable president. How can this president reject subpoenas when the rest of us would find ourselves behind bars for doing so, they wondered. Wait till Mueller testifies, they were told, but it began to appear that Mueller might not testify. Wait until 2020, they were told, because it's too politically risky for Democrats to impeach a president who is so worshipped by just over one in three of us. Americans were told to wait amid the threat of actual war, amid rising prices and lost jobs from a trade war, and in the midst of a cultural war against women based on the notion women don't have the morality to make important decisions about their lives and bodies. Democratic leaders in Congress have argued that to win 2020, they need to focus on the needs of Americans, not on enforcing the laws as they pertain to a lawless president. Sure, our home is a mess. It needs dusting and vacuuming and good health care and a living wage. But maybe we should focus on that fire that started in the corner that's now spreading to the rest of the house. The fire won't wait until we've tidied up the place. Eyes on the prize, they were told. Focus on 2020, they were advised as the flames grew. Democratic leaders fear Americans won't like them and won't vote for them in 2020 if they make it all about him. What the Democratic leaders in Congress may not see 
is the risk of losing their own voter base if they don't at least try to be on the right side of history, try to put patriotism above politics, try to stop the law-breaking, try something. Maybe the risk is not losing in 2020 for being too aggressive. Maybe the risk is losing your own base for being too timid to take charge, to show leadership over weakness. There's growing talk on social media of marches in the streets if Democrats don't launch an impeachment in high gear and right away. Maybe the prize isn't 2020 at all. Maybe the prize is saving this Democratic Republic from becoming a banana republic. Maybe the prize is simply doing the right thing. Yeah, but impeachment will fail, we're told, because it'll never get by the Senate. Fun story. In the summer of 1974, the vast majority of Republicans in the Senate stood by Richard Nixon even a full year into the Watergate scandal. Just three weeks later, only five Senate Republicans still supported him. Why the change? Why so fast? Televised impeachment hearings. It would appear that even the most loyal politicians will bail on their leader when that leader begins to damage the politicians' own chances for re-election, their own career survival. And in 1974, their re-election chances had been damaged by those televised impeachment hearings. At the next opportunity, Americans voted for a Democratic president. And there is no failure in holding everyone, including the president, to the law. And the Democrat-controlled House has the power and the constitutional duty to do exactly that. Yeah, but what if he gets reelected because of the impeachment hearings that fail to remove him? Well, we didn't expect him to win the first time, but re-election based on the numbers doesn't seem likely. Trump's popularity has dropped even among his voter base. He's lost the independents. He's lost the people who really wanted Bernie Sanders but voted for him instead. And Trump would endure immeasurable political damage in televised impeachment hearings as the truth would finally come out, damage he could likely not overcome on Election Day. Make no mistake, the contents of the Mueller report, for those who've read it or credible accounts of it, are as damning as facts can be in a case against a rogue president. The facts show that a hostile foreign government interfered with a U.S. presidential election and that the man favored by Russia has left this nation vulnerable to another attack, instead retaliating against the investigators instead of against the hostile foreign government behind the attack. The Justice Department now says it'll give the House Intelligence Committee previously redacted material that pertains to Trump campaign cooperation with Russia, along with its supporting evidence, in exchange... The committee's agreed to hold off enforcing its subpoena for the full report, but that subpoena remains in effect as the committee continues its pursuit of the entire report. This deal has not played well with the committee chairs who want to enforce their subpoenas, nor has it played well with those clamoring for impeachment hearings. The deal might, however, buy Nancy Pelosi the extra time she wants before pulling the impeachment trigger. The Mueller report also shows that Trump has obstructed justice in this matter at every possible turn, repeatedly violating the law along the way. And now he's fighting for his own political and financial life by challenging the very foundations of our government and dividing the nation more deeply every day in a nonstop shower of agonizing news. It needed to stop yesterday, but now would do nicely. So at this moment, the question looms even larger. Where the heck is Robert Mueller? Why hasn't he jumped at the chance to clear the deeply muddied impression Americans now have of his two years' work? Why hasn't Mueller done the presumably patriotic thing and just cleared the record and answered some very valid questions? 
The talks to get Mueller up to the Hill are at a stalemate. The two parties unable to agree on how much of Mueller's testimony should be public in front of the cameras. Mueller reportedly wants his written report to speak for itself and doesn't want to appear political, even as his silence raises its own questions about his politics. Team Trump cannot have it both ways. It cannot both be true that a president can't be investigated by Congress and also be immune to criminal indictment. Because if both are true, then this president, every president, is above the law despite the oath swearing to protect it. In recent U.S. history, we have not indicted sitting presidents. The Constitution does not ban indicting a sitting president. There isn't even a law to that effect. It's just Justice Department policy. Just a policy. Now, well over 900 former federal prosecutors and Justice Department officials have signed a statement declaring that were it not for that policy, Trump would face criminal obstruction of justice in multiple felonies. We wonder if Robert Mueller agrees with them. As it stands, we do not know, because Mueller has still not testified. The White House is doing what it thinks it can, invoking executive privilege and refusing to allow testimony from a man who still technically works for the Justice Department, which is a division of the executive branch, which is for now headed by Trump. Executive privilege, by the way, is also not a law and not in the Constitution. It's just another policy that we've allowed. But Mueller's made it clear that he's his own man, seeming to ignore both the White House and Democrats, and he's at least been negotiating with lawmakers over the terms of his testimony. But that isn't going well, as you just heard. Still, Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler says he's confident he can get Mueller into the witness chair now that Democrats have won their first subpoena fights with Trump. More on those victories in a moment. The two sides are also discussing whether any of Mueller's investigators should join him at the witness table. Everybody wants a piece of this guy. The House Intelligence Committee would also like a Q&A with Mueller. Chairman Adam Schiff says he's confident that in his words, we'll get there. Schiff and Nadler already have it worked out. Mueller would testify first for judiciary publicly and then testify for the Intelligence Committee, mostly behind closed doors, since the topic would be the counterintelligence evidence that Mueller had collected. If all else fails, break glass, issue subpoena. For many Democrats, a subpoena rejected by former White House counsel Don McGahn was the red line the administration dare not cross if it hoped to avoid impeachment hearings. But McGahn was a no-show for his scheduled testimony Tuesday on orders from the White House that no longer employs him. McGahn's a star witness for Democrats who saw him referenced 157 times in the Mueller report as he cooperated with those investigators. The White House is claiming executive privilege in ordering McGahn not to testify, a privilege the White House had already waived when it let McGahn testify for Mueller in the first place. McGahn now faces contempt of Congress charges and a court battle to defend his refusal to testify he could even lose his license to practice law. House Democrats are now discussing charging McGahn and others with inherent contempt, which means they can be fined or even jailed. McGahn's no-show also turned up the heat for launching an impeachment inquiry on Trump as the stonewalling went widespread. Pressure to impeach was also applied by the ad from California Democratic billionaire Tom Steyer, who spent millions this week on a pro-impeachment TV spot that closes with these words about Trump aimed at Democratic leaders in Washington. Quote, he's defying you, he's laughing at you, and he's getting away with it. 
more pressure on Pelosi to impeach. We also learned this week that when Michael Cohen testified behind closed doors for the House Intelligence Committee, he named a name. Cohen named Trump lawyer Jay Sekulow as the person who'd instructed him to lie to Congress about the Trump Tower Moscow project. More obstruction evidence. More pressure to impeach. We also learned that a Michigan Republican, Congressman Justin Amash, had become the first in his party to say that Trump has committed impeachable offenses and that Trump's hand-picked Attorney General, William Barr, has intentionally misled the American people. That news also turned up the heat on impeachment and turned up pressure on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to greenlight an impeachment inquiry. As did a phone call from Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler urging Pelosi to okay his launching of impeachment hearings. That's an important call since it is Nadler's committee that would open impeachment hearings, and it's ultimately up to him if and when to do that. Although he's so far deferred to the House Speaker, whose support is vital to those hearings, getting that blessing is also standard procedure. But it was more pressure on Pelosi, as were the arguments from five of her top caucus members, urging that the inquiry be set into motion because it would give Congress access to evidence it cannot otherwise get. Failure to launch impeachment hearings, they fear, could permanently damage Congress's power as a co-equal branch of government. But no. Even after all these developments, including the red line of defying a lawful subpoena, Pelosi told her caucus to refocus on health care and wages and the rest and to step away from the impeachment button while using other means to hold this president accountable to the law. From here, it appears she cannot hold that line much longer. While Pelosi was debating impeachment with her top colleagues, Trump was telling the red hats assembled in Pennsylvania that American law enforcement and the Democrats are guilty of treason and promising them that Attorney General William Barr would investigate that. Pelosi was saying no to impeachment, even as the red hats in PA were shouting, lock them up, lock them up. Little do Trump supporters know or care that the dollars they spent on those Trump hats and the dollars they've donated to his 2020 campaign, hundreds of thousands of dollars, are being spent on the army of lawyers defending Trump in criminal matters, not on the campaign. Maryland Democrat Jamie Raskin, who was also a constitutional law professor, says that if Trump isn't confronted soon, this president will only become more lawless and more unhinged. With Trump defying 20 of the 29 investigations related to him, it appears Democrats are left with just one path to follow. Just over a half century ago, CBS Evening News anchor Walter Cronkite, then considered the most trusted man in America, declared that the U.S. was losing its war, its long war in Vietnam, and he called for the withdrawal of American troops. The war did not end quickly after that, but the tide of public opinion did, and that led to the end of the war. On a much tinier scale, of course, this is as close as I've ever been or will get to that kind of Cronkite moment. I'm no Cronkite, but impeachment hearings against this president must begin immediately. Americans who've paid attention have waited. They've waited patiently. They've waited a long time. Americans who've been paying attention don't want to wait another day. With more than 25 lawmakers now in favor, the wave of impeachment support is building and has already become an unstoppable force. What usually happens next involves the unstoppable force crashing into an immovable object, and then something has to give. 
the failure to hold a criminal president accountable through indictment or impeachment because the opposition is drenched in fear and dread is to declare that a president is a king, a monarch, an imperial president, and Trump behaves as such more than ever. The administration's taking to laughing at Democrats for their apparent weakness. William Barr shaking hands with Nancy Pelosi the other day saying, Madam Speaker, did you bring your handcuffs? And Trump's feeling mightier than ever, declaring that the law enforcement officials he wrongly believes spied on his campaign committed treason in all caps. Treason, said the tweeter-in-chief, means long jail sentences, and this was treason, end quote. No, this was U.S. law enforcement and the American intelligence community investigating a cyber attack from Russia that led it to the Trump campaign. Yet there was Trump threatening to investigate and punish his political enemies. In fact, at least four investigations of the investigators are already underway, including at least one led by Trump Attorney General William Barr, who has agreed with Trump about this perceived spying. Richard Nixon tried his hand at an imperial presidency, but not so much as this guy. And it didn't work out for Nixon. There is danger in placing yourself on a pillar so high. Tall pillars are top-heavy and emperors fall. House investigators vowed to set about enforcing their ignored subpoenas this week. One strategy that has been working for House Democrats is that legal strategy. This week, in a major defeat for the president, a federal judge ruled that Trump's accounting firm must comply with a subpoena to provide years of his financial records to Congress. The judge stopped just short of ridiculing White House lawyers for their claim that Congress has no right to subpoena documents from a non-governmental entity, which is simply not true. Judge Amit Mehta stopped just short of ridiculing White House lawyers for arguing that Congress can't subpoena anything unless that subpoena serves a legislative purpose. Piling on his own ruling, Mehta listed a string of possible legislative purposes for Congress getting Trump's financial records. Judge Mehta not only ruled against the president, he ruled against the White House lawyer's formal request to delay the enforcement of his decision. Trump's request for a stay was denied. The accounting firm in this case, Mazars, had asked to be subpoenaed for those documents so he could justify violating the privacy of one of its clients. And although the judge gave Mazars just seven days to hand over those documents to Congress, the documents were already likely in boxes and ready for transport. This was an important battle, and Trump lost bigly. He's not a good loser, calling Judge Maida's ruling crazy and saying Maida made a wrong decision because Maida was appointed by Obama, as if Obama's judges were somehow illegitimate and not to be obeyed. Trump, of course, doesn't know or care that Maida was confirmed by a unanimous vote of both Republicans and Democrats. And then yesterday, a second federal judge dealt Trump his second legal blow in two days, joining Judge Mehta in rejecting his appeal of a congressional subpoena for his financial records. This time, however, the institution holding those records was Deutsche Bank. And Congress will quickly have its hands on all of it. Money laundering is a federal crime, a serious felony, so it's probably best that Deutsche Bank has employees who specialize in rooting out cases of money laundering by its clients. Banks, after all, are required to report transactions they find suspicious, and Deutsche Bank had just recently gotten caught laundering more than $10 million for Russian oligarchs. Deutsche Bank would be forced to pay $630 million in fines for that money laundering. 
Deutsche Bank was also at the time about the only bank in New York that would still lend money to Donald Trump after he had stiffed the other banks on loans he'd gotten from them. So it's good to have anti-money laundering specialists, and the specialists at Deutsche Bank have stayed busy just on Donald Trump and Jared Kushner alone. Having money laundering specialists is good. It's even better if you listen to them. The management of Deutsche Bank didn't do that and continued to lend money to Trump even after he sued them. Mysterious behavior for a bank. Management ignored the red flags that were brought to their attention. Deutsche Bank management ignored the computer's red lights. And they ignored their anti-laundering specialists who recommended that all these red lights and red flags be reported to the Treasury Department as the law requires. Bank management overruled them, and the reports of the specialists that listed all the times the red lights went off never made it outside the bank until this week. We now know all of this thanks to five past and current employees of Deutsche Bank who've spoken with the intrepid journalist of the New York Times. We now know that Deutsche Bank lent billions of dollars to Trump and Kushner companies against the advice of its own experts and impossible violation of the law. At least some of the transactions involved the flow of money across the Atlantic, including to individuals and entities the experts viewed as suspicious. Some of the money passed between Russians and Donald Trump Jr. On at least four different fronts, the things Trump has tried hardest to hide were coming forth, his finances and his taxes. And we're about to find out why. Also new this week, the House Intelligence Committee is investigating whether Trump's lawyers and the lawyers of his family members have assisted in the obstruction of justice. It was Michael Cohen's testimony that the lawyers helped with the wording of his previous false testimony to Congress about the Trump Tower Moscow project. He even provided Congress with copies of the edits the lawyers had made to his statement. It was during that editing process that Cohen says a presidential pardon was dangled to make lying to Congress the more inviting way to go. The Intelligence Committee investigation is not expected to accomplish much, not as much as these court cases over congressional subpoenas, but Chairman Adam Schiff says it will send a message to other potential witnesses that the game is up. Perhaps inching closer to opening an impeachment inquiry, House Speaker Pelosi says the president is engaged in a cover-up. And on the subject of pardons, New York state lawmakers in both houses have passed a bill that would let their state prosecute anyone granted a presidential pardon for similar federal crimes. Trump's banks and businesses are all headquartered in New York and are therefore under state jurisdiction as well as federal. This New York bill also gives the state permission to turn any resident state tax returns over to the three congressional committees in Washington that write our tax and banking laws. New York, like California, and 17 other states are also voting on requiring a candidate to make public their tax returns in order to even get on the ballot, the 2020 ballot. And now on to Trump's taxes, which could tell us a lot about his foreign connections. The first things to remember about the battle over making public the president's tax returns are, one, that every president and candidate for that office in the past half century has released theirs in an effort to show they are not beholden to anyone of concern to the nation. Two, that although Trump promised to release his tax returns during the campaign, he since made it clear that's the last thing he intends to do, hiring a team of lawyers to fight exactly that. Three, when the nation was in need of a new attorney general, Trump told Senate leader Mitch McConnell that appointing a new IRS commissioner was a much higher priority, and McConnell acted accordingly. 
for that the man Trump chose for IRS commissioner wrote a book during the campaign as perhaps the only voice saying Trump should not release his returns. And five, that Trump's Treasury Secretary, who oversees the IRS, was also his campaign finance manager. And now both that Treasury Secretary and that IRS commissioner are on the front lines of the battle to continue to hide Trump's tax papers from Congress and the rest of the nation's taxpayers. Defying a lawful subpoena, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin is refusing to turn over Trump's returns, arguing Congress has no legislative purpose in requesting them. There's that legislative purpose thing again, the one that played so poorly in Judge Maida's courtroom. The thing that isn't true, because Congress does have legislative purpose here to curtail foreign influence and to write tax laws to prevent that in the future. Impeachment is also a legislative purpose. And then there's this. The Washington Post has published a previously unrevealed IRS memo written just before Stephen Mnuchin and the IRS commissioner got their jobs. It's actually just an unsigned draft of a memo, but it was a complete analysis of the law by an unknown Justice Department lawyer. It's a legal interpretation of the law. That memo says the Treasury Secretary must release a person's tax returns to Congress when they're requested by the chairs of the tax writing committees. The memo says the Treasury Secretary has no discretion whatsoever in this matter. Unless, of course, that person is the president and has invoked executive privilege. The memo is based on a 1924 law that says the Treasury Secretary, quote, shall furnish tax returns to Congress. That's the law Congress is using to try to get Trump's tax returns. In December of 2016, President-elect Donald Trump was having serious doubts about Mike Flynn, the general who'd served him so faithfully during the campaign, leading the chance of lock her up. Trump acted out his concern by reminding his aides that Obama had warned him about Flynn, who'd been demoted by Obama for embracing wild conspiracy theories and creating turmoil in the National Security Council. There had also been press accounts that Obama had warned Trump about Flynn, during their transition meeting. Just days into his presidency, the White House was warned by then-Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates that the U.S. intelligence community had discovered that Flynn had been compromised by Russia. After allowing Flynn to sit in on National Security Council meetings for another three weeks, Trump finally fired Mike Flynn. Trump claimed Flynn had lied to the vice president about Flynn's Russia connections, even though Pence already knew the truth. The vice president himself had been warned about Flynn's foreign ties by Flynn's own lawyers and recommended Flynn anyway as the administration's first national security advisor. Pence had been chosen as Trump's VP on advice from Paul Manafort, who's now in prison. With the passage of time, Trump would see Michael Flynn plead guilty to charges from special counsel Robert Mueller for lying to the FBI. Trump had been warned about Flynn, and that's now been confirmed by Mueller. But this past Friday, Trump tweeted, General Flynn was under investigation long before it was common knowledge. It would have been impossible for me to know this. Why was I not told? End quote. The president's lies grow exponentially, not just in number, but in size. Mike Flynn held on to his big lie for as long as he could. Flynn's big lie was his claim that he did not suggest to Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak in a late December 2016 phone call that Russia not retaliate against the U.S. for the new sanctions Obama had placed on it over its interference in the election. 
to not embarrass the incoming president who could easily lift those sanctions. A few days later, Putin announced there would be no retaliation. The implication was that a deal had been struck, that the incoming administration would lift the Obama sanctions as soon as possible, making retaliation by Russia unnecessary. It's all in the Mueller report that so many believe proved nothing. Once Flynn admitted his lie and admitted his guilt, he became very, very cooperative with the investigators, trying to shorten his inevitable prison sentence. The transcript of that phone call with the Russian ambassador will be released to the public on or before May 31st, which is now just eight days away. The transcript will be released on the orders of U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan, who has also ordered that one other transcript be made public from another phone call involving Mike Flynn. This call was actually a recorded message left for Flynn by one of the president's lawyers. The president reminded Flynn of how fond the president is of him, a way of saying how fond the president won't be if Flynn was thinking about cooperating with the feds. Ultimately, Flynn did cooperate with investigators and is currently awaiting his sentence as he tries to cooperate more. In court papers just unsealed a week ago tonight, prosecutors say Flynn told of instances in which, quoting these court documents, he or his attorneys received communications from persons connected to the administration or Congress that could have affected both his willingness to cooperate and the completeness of that cooperation. Or Congress? That's new. Make a post-it note for that since it's bound to come up again. Congress, you don't say. It's all in the Mueller report that so many believe proved nothing. All of this stuff ordered released by Judge Sullivan had been redacted before from court documents, but now it was out there, and his honor says he may release not only the transcripts, but the actual recordings of those conversations. Former White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus and former Deputy National Security Advisor K.T. McFarland told investigators that Trump had asked them to reach out to Flynn and to urge him to, quote, stay strong, more evidence of obstruction through witness tampering, and to think that we saw it in the Mueller report. One by one, 25 white men, enough for a majority in the Alabama State Senate, voted yes on a bill that would put doctors in prison for life for performing an abortion. Under the bill they passed, abortion would be a crime as soon as the mother knows she's pregnant. Women who cross state lines to get an abortion someplace other than Alabama would be jailed. The people not represented among those yes-voting faces are women, especially the poor and especially African-Americans and Hispanics. The bill was then signed by the state's Republican female governor, making Alabama the latest and most radical state to try to ban abortion. Alabama Republicans were hoping to overturn Roe v. Wade, but overshot their mark with a law more radical than Republicans like Trump or Romney could accept, more radical than even this Supreme Court is willing to accept. But there's no question that this radical approach was fueled by Trump. His appointment of conservative judges inclined to rule against Roe gave new energy to the anti-abortion, anti-choice forces. As we speak, abortion is still legal on the federal level in every state in the union, although abortion clinics are becoming more scarce and women are increasingly intimidated by this state-by-state trend. In Georgia and Alabama, there's already a shortage of OBGYNs. Not even half of Alabama's counties have these doctors who fled the South to avoid 
prosecution for abortion, which means women are also not getting screened for cervical cancer and other serious afflictions. As a result, women will go online to find things to drink to try to abort their fetuses or turn to other dangerous means, and some will develop cervical cancer from just not being screened. In short, while the court fight plays out, women will die. These new state laws in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Missouri, and other states will be locked up in legal challenges and may never take effect. But some of the less radical among them are likely to land before the increasingly conservative Supreme Court. And so the national abortion rights laid out by Roe v. Wade are still at risk. The high court is already considering hearing a challenge to the Indiana law signed by then-Governor Mike Pence that would force a woman to give birth to a child with a disability. For what little consolation it is, court watchers say these justices would rather chip away at Roe v. Wade slowly, dismantling it in a quieter way. There is also resistance, however, among prosecutors to enforce this string of radical new anti-abortion, anti-choice laws. District attorneys and other prosecutors have the absolute discretion in deciding whether charges are formally filed in any criminal case. That includes abortion laws. We cannot put people in jail for this as a prosecutor in conservative Salt Lake City, Utah. Multiple county prosecutors in Georgia agree. In 2015, one Georgia prosecutor dropped the murder charges filed against a 23-year-old woman who'd taken an abortion pill in her second trimester. Michigan's attorney general says her office won't prosecute women or doctors even if Roe is overturned. And prosecutors cannot be fined or overruled by their state's governors. Even 100 years ago, when abortion was truly illegal, it was nearly impossible to get a jury to convict. As if we don't already have enough on our plates, now we have the renewed Republican assault on women's rights to polarize the populace just in time for the 2020 campaign. Both sides are fired up and ready for battle. But one side was more fired up than the other after Missouri Republican referred to cases of what he called consensual rape. Republicans appear to have the most to lose here considering the opposition that's been fired up in women voters. Just look at the numbers. 71% of Americans support the Roe versus Wade decision that legalized abortion. Fewer than one in four of us want it overturned. Fewer than one in four. Even 52% of Republican voters support safe, legal abortions. Republican politicians are out on a limb now, and the wind is blowing. Ironically, in the same pro-life week, death penalty drugs got easier for states to get thanks to a ruling from the Trump Justice Department. The administration has declared that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, does not have the authority to regulate drugs for lethal injections. Death penalty drugs had grown scarce in the U.S. Under the Trump ruling, states can now buy these drugs from India, China, and other countries. Under this ruling, the FDA can no longer stand in the way of states trying to get their hands on an anesthetic that's combined with other drugs to paralyze prisoners' muscles, including their heart muscles. Even something as ugly as war has rules. Our current president's made it clear he doesn't care about rules. Our current president is also fascinated by violence, telling supporters he'll cover their legal bills for roughing up a protester, telling cops to bang a few heads, repeatedly citing a brutal movie scene he thinks really portrays the situation on our southern border. Torture works, he claimed on the campaign trail, promising to bring back waterboarding as an interrogation technique. The list goes on. But war has rules. 
our own Defense Department has and uses a set of rules to protect against unnecessary suffering for both civilians and combatants to work for peace through discipline and professionalism. There are international rules as well, and a violation of any of these rules is a war crime, and sometimes American soldiers commit war crimes. President Trump is planning to pardon and honor some of them in time for Memorial Day this weekend. He's looking to pardon a Navy SEAL who shot unarmed civilians in Iraq and killed a prisoner with a knife. Trump hopes to pardon the Marine snipers who urinated on some Taliban members they'd killed. He's considering pardoning a Blackwater contractor convicted of shooting dozens of unarmed Iraqis. It sends a message to our current troops that they could be pardoned, too, for being ultraviolent. And it's an insult to the men and women who serve this nation so effectively while not breaking the rules of war. As we set out for our summer vacations this year, you may notice fewer TSA agents at the security lines, which may move more slowly as a result. That would be because the Trump administration is thinking about borrowing some of those airport security agents to help patrol the Mexican border. Elijah Cummings' House Oversight Committee has sent a sternly worded letter to the TSA urging it to keep its agents right exactly where they are. Meanwhile, migrant children are still dying at the hands of Customs and Border Protection. A 16-year-old Guatemalan boy this week became the fifth migrant child to die in U.S. custody in the past six months. The boy was found unresponsive on Monday morning after being diagnosed with the flu the day before. Border agents did go to a local pharmacy to get the boy some Tamiflu. They did not take him to a hospital. After arriving from a processing center where he had spent six days, the boy was moved to another facility with signs of the flu and had been in Border Patrol custody for about 18 hours. Last week, a toddler in U.S. custody died after being hospitalized for pneumonia, having developed a high fever and breathing difficulty immediately following his apprehension. In late April, another 16-year-old boy died in U.S. custody. And back in December, a 7-year-old died of a bacterial infection and an 8-year-old died from infection and complications brought on by the flu. The 16-year-old boy who died Monday had just been moved out of the Border Patrol's main processing center in McAllen, Texas. 32 migrants at that processing center have since been diagnosed with influenza. And last night, we learned of a sixth death in Border Patrol custody, a 10-year-old girl with a heart condition who died last September. Her death never reported, kept secret until now. Acting Homeland Security Secretary Kevin McAleenan said in March, we are doing everything we can to simply avoid a tragedy, but with these numbers, with the types of illnesses we're seeing, I fear it's just a matter of time. The numbers are that the U.S. has more than 52,000 migrants in custody in a boon for the private prison industry. 8,000 migrants are in solitary confinement. The administration now has six child deaths on its record, compared to zero in the 10 years leading up to this presidency. With his other efforts not working, Trump's newest immigration idea was carried to Capitol Hill by son-in-law Jared Kushner, and Republican leaders nearly laughed Kushner out of the room when they heard it. The plan would put an end to immigration based on family ties to be replaced by the few who bring technical and professional skills lacking in the U.S. It's a thinly veiled attempt to put a nicer spin on Trump's efforts to virtually eliminate immigration altogether. Trump's proposal for what he calls a merit-based system has prompted Democrats to ask, is there no merit in families? 
And Trump's lawyers continue to embarrass themselves in court in lame attempts to defend his policies, sometimes with arguments that are, in fact, laughable. Late last week, Trump lawyers argued that Congress was not denying money for Trump's wall when it left that money out of the appropriations bill passed in February. That's a ridiculous notion since it is the specific power of Congress to decide how much money will or won't be spent on virtually everything the government does. And in that three-hour hearing, not once did anyone utter the words national emergency. Anybody remember the national emergency of the border? Ferris, anyone? Trump's lawyers are making these same failing arguments in other lawsuits against the funding of Trump's wall. Even when he doesn't talk about it, the wall is still very much on the mind of Trump. The wall has already morphed a few times, no longer concrete now, but a steel fence of slats. There is no off switch on Trump's imagining of his wall. As developers keep making prototypes, Trump's ideas keep coming and they have to keep changing their plans. Now he wants the slats to be flat black to absorb the heat of the sun that broils the border to burn anyone who tries to climb it. And he wants spikes at the top to rip the flesh of anyone who might make it that far. That's the ticket now. Black with spikes, please. And could you make the gaps between the slats a little narrower to keep out the extra skinny children and presumably any dwarves who might try to squeeze through those already narrow spaces? Trump also makes changes in the wall's appearance as well as its expected functionality. He wants it to be dangerous and look dangerous. He often tells the contractors he has developers in New York who put up skyscrapers faster than this. What the engineers don't tell him is a wall isn't a skyscraper, and a builder usually sticks to one plan. But the ideas just keep coming, even as developers finish redesigning the old ones. Every change drives up the price of the wall, and once you paint a fence, you have to repaint it. Trump would reportedly call former Homeland Security Secretary Kirstjen Nielsen in the middle of the night with ideas for how the wall should be built or how it might be changed. For those who've wondered how Nielsen could sleep at night during her time as Trump's Homeland Security Secretary, now you know. The president's resistance to our laws, the death of children in U.S. custody, and the state-by-state -state plot to outlaw abortion nationally are not the worst of it, according to Salon.com's Bob Seska. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. A couple of weeks ago, I published a story about a move by the Trump administration so confounding and cruel, I was stymied as to why it wasn't getting more attention. In a shocking turn of events, Trump's Justice Department has chosen to stop enforcing a ban on female genital mutilation, or FGM for short. Even after the story dropped, most readers, I believe, were incapable of fully processing how truly awful it was simply based on the already overwhelming status of the Trump firehose of news. To briefly recap, Trump's Solicitor General Noel Francisco told Dianne Feinstein that a federal judge in Michigan struck down the law banning this form of torture on the basis that the federal government had no jurisdiction to regulate such a thing because there wasn't anything in the law addressing the crossing of state lines. In other words, the law was missing an ingredient, so the judge struck down the law and ruled against the government. Trump could have appealed that decision, a standard move these days, but rather than taking the next step, Francisco and Trump decided not to further defend the law. 
Time after time, we've observed that Trump is willing to abandon the rule of law to protect Trump. Trump is willing to appeal federal court rulings, despite the circumstances, to protect Trump from impeachment. But Trump is unwilling to offer the same consideration to the estimated half a million young girls in this country who are vulnerable to being mutilated in a way that would make Game of Thrones sadist Ramsey Bolton queasy. A second and almost as harrowing story dropped last week that was likewise obliterated in the firehose of ceaseless Trump lawlessness. The story initially posted on May 16, and we're only now really beginning to notice a full week later. The president is planning on invoking the Insurrection Act of 1807 in order to engage the American military as a domestic civilian police force. The intent is to use the act in conjunction with his national security declaration, authorized by Trump as a means of getting his pointless border wall. Specifically here, the military will be deployed to round up undocumented immigrants, or so they say. The immigration excuse is a likely story coming from a mad king whose every presidential act is aimed directly at securing his presidency and therefore his personal freedom, the presidency being the only thing standing between Trump and prison. It makes sense in a twisted sort of way that as legal matters worsen, Trump is amplifying his commander-in-chief powers and the powers contained in the Insurrection Act. If Trump loses in 2020 or if Congress convicts him in an impeachment trial, I've always forecasted that he'd order the military to protect him from removal. Now Trump has moved yet another step toward that endgame. I was deeply concerned about the powers he'd acquire through the National Emergency Declaration. The dusting off of the Insurrection Act, however, augments his reach by adding an enforcement mechanism to arrest and indefinitely detain anyone who this profoundly paranoid and wounded president says might be aiding in what Trump has publicly referred to as an invasion. The Insurrection Act, though, isn't designed for invasions. It's designed literally to put down rebellions, hence the name. It explicitly gives Trump the power to use the military to quell, quote, unlawful obstructions, combinations, or assemblages, or rebellion against the authority of the United States. Worse, the Insurrection Act supersedes the Posse Comitatus Act, which forbids the commander-in-chief from deploying the military inside the United States. Consequently, Trump can manufacture any old excuse as to why dissidents or even traitors are aiding in this invasion-slash-non-insurrection-insurrection. Granted, both George H.W. Bush and Dwight Eisenhower used the Insurrection Act to send troops to control the L.A. riots or to enforce school desegregation, respectively. However, each circumstance was limited in scope and duration. Trump's alleged immigrant invasion can easily be framed as endless and pernicious, enough to leave the door open for an ongoing military presence in our streets. Our streets. Anyone who believes Trump's intentions are genuine and limited is probably wearing their red hat too tightly. Nothing he does is limited or genuine. Adding to the insanity here is that radical alt-right stooge Stephen Miller, who's the mastermind of Trump's immigration bellicosity, is likely more extreme than his boss. We'd be foolish to attribute prudence to these two monsters. Do we really believe Miller might advise Trump to take it easy or to end the national emergency? Of course not, and we'd be smart to keep our eyes wide open. Meanwhile, Trump is busily floating the concept that there are traitors in our midst who are actively engaged in a so-called deep state coup against him. It wouldn't require much for Trump to order the military to arrest, say, James Comey, 
you know, to send a warning to the other alleged plotters. Or Trump could easily deploy soldiers to polling places or to break up protests. Hell, maybe this, like the FGM ruling, is too harrowing to comprehend. His mental capacity has been slowly diminishing since the campaign, and even in the best of circumstances, Trump's an unspooled maniac who will do whatever he needs to do in order to protect himself. And as I've been warning from the beginning, the closer Trump gets to prison, the more extreme his actions will become. Knowing the weapons at his disposal, the entire future of American democracy depends on whether this unspooled maniac will do the right thing. And what the hell are the odds of that? I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show there this afternoon. I'll be back with Bob again on Tuesday. Coming up, are rich guys full of BS? Do people seem angrier to you? And less sex, fewer kids in the final segment after this. Oh, by all means, use the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com to get your own personal copy of the Mueller Report and all the other great books written about our times. And please do all your shopping there year-round at home, school, and work. Shopping through my Amazon link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. Just go to buzzburbank.com and click the Amazon logo. You land on your usual Amazon page, which you can then bookmark to replace your old shopping bookmark. And once you've done that, I get a little commission from Amazon for every purchase you make, so it really does help power this free weekly report. On your desktop browser, that Amazon logo is in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. If you choose not to use my Amazon link, then please support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal Donate button. Thank you for all of those things and for spreading the word about this effort. Bad week for Mother Earth, I'm afraid. When it set off its first hydrogen bomb, the U.S. was taken aback at just how powerful that thing was. The blast was more powerful than the atomic bomb that wiped out the Japanese city of Hiroshima. U.S. experts didn't see coming how powerful. They were expecting the hydrogen bomb to be about two and a half times as powerful as the atomic bomb. They were off a little. The hydrogen bomb was a thousand times more powerful, its mushroom cloud towering four and a half miles into the air. Radioactive ash fell from the sky, covering 7,000 square miles of ocean and the Marshall Islands. The island's health minister would later testify, quote, No one knew it was radioactive fallout. The children, he said, played in the snow. They ate it. The ash remains dangerously radioactive for 24,000 years. It wasn't until 1977 that the U.S. Nuclear Defense Agency would begin a continuing cleanup of the nuclear debris and build a temporary concrete dome over the worst of it. Temporary because it was supposed to have been replaced with a better plan. We just never got around to it. Today, that concrete is crumbling on that temporary dome, and it's under threat from the passing of time and from the rising sea. We learned from a new university study that sea levels rising faster than first predicted could be up by another six and a half feet by the end of the century. If a baby born today lives 80 years or so, they would see that in their lifetimes. The United Nations prediction was up by just over three feet. This one says six and a half. The new study consulted with nearly two dozen scientists who specialize in the planet's polar ice. 
Quoting the British geography professor who's one of the authors of this report, it really is pretty grim. The study says this outcome can be avoided if we just stop using fossil fuels as quickly as possible. The Cocos Islands, over a thousand miles off the coast of Western Australia, have been touted as Australia's last unspoilt paradise. University marine researcher Jennifer Lavers, however, found that the coral reefs and the white sand beaches were littered with an estimated 414 million pieces of garbage, the bulk of it now buried beneath that pristine white sand. And almost all the garbage, plastic, drinking straws, a third of a million toothbrushes, and nearly one million shoes. Don't blame the people of Cocos. There are only 600 of them. It would take them 4,000 years to generate this much plastic waste. And plastic has been around barely over a century. Islands, say scientists, are very helpful at measuring the amount of plastic in our sea. The best guess is there are five and a quarter trillion pieces of plastic in the world's oceans. The Milky Way doesn't even have that many stars. Here are some tips, whether you want them or not. Consider using reusable shopping bags instead of the plastic throwaways. Use just a few reusable food storage containers instead of so many plastic food storage bags. Say no thank you to straws in a restaurant. If you have to have a straw, make it paper or a reusable. They make some nice ones. You can also get toothbrushes whose handles are carved from bamboo instead of molded plastic. Use less plastic in general. Reduce, reuse, and recycle. The Trump administration, meanwhile, wants to change the way we count pollution-related deaths so it'll seem there aren't so many of them. That appears to be the administration's way of making possible the further loosening of pollution rules, which are tied to the number of pollution-related deaths. Math is more fun when you can change the numbers. When the EPA learned that an administration proposal would have increased premature deaths from pollution by 1,400 a year, the counting method was changed and the death numbers in the Trump plan went way down. Particles in the air from the burning of coal can lodge deep in the lungs, leading to respiratory diseases, even heart attacks and strokes as it gets into the bloodstream. At least it won't appear there are so many deaths as the Trump administration pursues more coal. Most of our states, however, are doing it for themselves. Over a dozen states have boosted their environmental laws for the sake of cleaner water and to help resist climate change. A dozen states are forcing car makers to make cars more fuel efficient than the Trump administration requires. A half dozen states are banning PFAs, the substance found in nonstick pans and water-repellent clothing and some fire extinguisher stuff. A handful of states are acting for cleaner drinking water, banning some agricultural pesticides that turn up in our groundwater. A couple of states have new policies that focus on the gaseous emissions from the drilling for fossil fuels. Industries that Trump is trying to gift with deregulation often want more of it. 3M is begging for national standards so it can have the same standard at all of its facilities in all of its states instead of having to try to keep up state by state. NASA, with the support of this president, is asking for another $1.5 billion to put Americans back on the moon. Just over $1.5 billion for now. More money will be needed along the way. Among the first Americans returning to the moon, the first woman to ever set foot on it. China and Russia are already, meanwhile, checking out the lunar real estate up there. Speaking of the moon, it's another blue moon this weekend, the last one in this decade. 
This one is a seasonal blue moon, but it doesn't have to follow the usual two-in-a-month rule. This one gets the title because it's the third of four this spring. It's also called a blue flower moon. It's very complicated. And the moon, of course, won't be blue, just big and orange. Because of a big storm front, the event won't be seen in much of the U.S. and Canada, but will be visible in western Canada, western Texas, and the southeast part of the U.S. The measles outbreak has now spread to its 24th state, Oklahoma. Just before that, Illinois, after eight cases turned up in Chicago. The disease is spreading faster in New York City than anywhere else. There are now more than 880 cases of measles across the country, up by 41 from the previous week's count. The national record is 963 cases, and we are now closing in in the biggest outbreak since measles was eliminated in the U.S. in 2000. Most of those now sick had failed to get their vaccinations. The number of people now getting vaccinated is beginning to rise. In Germany, parents who don't get shots for their kids pay a fine. Right now, people in the U.S. are having fewer kids, probably a byproduct of the recession. The birth rate in the U.S. fell for the fourth straight year last year, its lowest rate in 32 years. It means we are reproducing at a rate insufficient to replace us. This is the 10th year in a row for such a deficit in the birth rate. Fewer teen pregnancies are right behind the recession among the causes. The recession pressured people to put off having babies or even getting married or buying a house or a car, the stuff many people try to do before having a baby. The recession officially ended in the summer of 2009, but its effects lingered and the failure of wages to keep up is the effect that remains with us today. The birth rate is down in France, prompting the mayor of one town to offer free Viagra for men. And as previously reported here, Americans have been having less sex largely because of our preoccupation with digital devices and video games. Technology has also led Americans to sit more and move less. A new report says our daily sitting time has increased by about an hour a day over the past 10 years for both teenagers and adults. Adults spend six and a half hours a day sitting now on average, teenagers just over eight hours a day. And it's no longer a question of too much TV. This is about computers, laptops, cell phones, and gaming systems. Don't worry, you can make up for it with 10 or 11 hours a week of fast walking. While we're waiting for that to happen, we can just get up from our computers at least once an hour. Vision experts say every 20 minutes. If the world seems angrier these days, that's because it is. Surveys in 142 countries found that 22% of us feel angry. That's up two points from last year and our new record holder. 39% of us say we face a lot of worry. That's up a point. 31% say we are in physical pain. Stress, oddly, is down two points, while anger is up. The nation of Taiwan has the fewest angry people. Maybe they don't look at Twitter. If you take away nothing else from today's program, let it be this. Odds are that rich guy doing the talking has no idea what he's talking about. Researchers at the University College of London and Australian Catholic University set out to measure the BS level on the things rich guys say in the world's English-speaking countries. We say guys because the study found that men shovel more BS than women, just as the wealthy are more prone to do so than the poor or middle class. But women in the U.S. BS far more than women in the rest of the world. Folks in the U.S. and Canada are the best at it. 
The study found that North Americans are far more likely than others to wax poetic on that we do not know. Suddenly, this research sounds very incriminating for me, except for the wealthy part. Pay no attention to the man behind the microphone. A new study at Oxford reveals that by the end of the century, there'll be nearly 5 billion dead people on Facebook. Although you can set Facebook to give your survivors access to your page, many people die without using that option. The result is millions of people counted as Facebook users when in fact they are actually dead. And that, say the Oxford researchers, raises the question, where does your data go after you die? In other Facebook news, earlier this month, the co-founder of the social media site, Chris Hughes, called for the breakup of Facebook to subdue its powerful social influence. The TV and movie industry is out to punish Georgia for its new anti-abortion law. If you've noticed a big peach at the end of some of your favorite shows, that means they were filmed in Georgia, thanks in part to the work of the Georgia Film Commission, which had nearly succeeded in making that state Hollywood on the East Coast. Ron Howard and his partner at Imagine Entertainment now say they won't work in Georgia, joining J.J. Abrams and several other film companies. Companies planning productions in Georgia have now canceled them, and those already in production there, like Walking Dead and Stranger Things, will stay put, but are donating to Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, and other pro-choice organizations. The stars have also objected. Georgia's House Speaker getting a protest letter signed by Alyssa Milano, Amy Schumer, Sean Penn, Alec Baldwin, Don Cheadle, Rosie O'Donnell, Patton Oswalt, Sarah Silverman, and Mia Farrow. Grumpy Cat's real name was Tardar Sauce, Tardar with a D in the middle instead of a T. She died this week at the age of seven from a urinary infection, which can take a cat's life very quickly. The grumpy-looking kitty lived a full life, I guess, with two and a half million followers on Instagram and a line of Grumpy Cat products now resting in peace. Perhaps Grumpy Cat can finally be happy. Big week for the movies. The week's top movie in theaters is the Keanu Reeves action flick, John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum. It sold over $57 million in tickets in the U.S. and Canada. Avengers Endgame was second with about $29.5 million. Pokemon Detective Pikachu was third with nearly $25 million. Previews, showtimes, and tickets. Click the Fandango logo at buzzburbank.com. This week's top album is Vampire Weekend's Father of the Bride. Billie Eilish's When We Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go is second, and Khalid's Free Spirit is third. The daughters of the late rock legend Tom Petty are suing his widow, accusing her of mismanaging their father's estate. They say Dana Petty has been uncooperative in running Petty Unlimited and has cost the company millions of dollars and has been diverting assets into a new company, Tom Petty Legacy. They accuse Dana of misappropriating the work he left to be controlled by his daughters. The legal fight actually began when Petty died two years ago. Dana Petty has asked a court to let her manage Petty's estate, calling one of the daughters erratic and abusive. In Detroit, meanwhile, at least three wills have now been found in the home of the late soul legend Aretha Franklin. That unfortunate legal fight continues as well. Keith Richards, meanwhile, is still alive. And almost as remarkably, so is Mick Jagger, who, after recovering from heart surgery at age 75, is ready to go on the road with Keith and the rest of the Rolling Stones. The tour starts June 21st in Chicago and ends August 31st in Miami with a new previously unscheduled stop in New Orleans. Jagger posted a video of himself dancing just six weeks after his valve replacement surgery in April. 
Politicians around the world are getting better at using social media, but one candidate for parliament in the upcoming general election in Denmark has also put an ad on an adult video website. Joachim Olsen is a center-right liberal, whatever that is. He's also an Olympic silver medalist for Denmark in the shot put. And he put up an ad on Pornhub, he says, to show that as a candidate he has a sense of humor or is very smart at politics. The election is June 5th. An Internet business in Nebraska will fake your vacation for you. If you want to make it appear on social media that your life is better than it actually is, for 20 bucks, fake a vacation will insert photos of you and or your family and or friends into shots of Disneyland, Las Vegas, the Grand Canyon, and more. The descriptions they write for you will make it appear you know what you're talking about in your posts. The company says its study showed that more than half of millennials have been faking vacations, partly because they can't afford to go anywhere and partly to get some props on social media. Our highway spill of the week again left no one hurt, but did lay a thick coating of honey all over I-80 in Hammond, Indiana. An axle snapped on a semi-tanker hauling 41,000 pounds of honey. It was not sweet for commuters, the honey spill starting at 6 a.m. and taking eight hours to clean up. They have, meanwhile, figured out what was clogging the storm drain on Greensbrook Place in Houston. They're nervous about blocked storm drains in Houston, which suffers from flooding and storms. And this was the biggest obstacle ever removed from a Houston storm drain. I mean, says a neighbor, backpacks, bags, whatever, but I've never seen anything as big as a TV in a storm drain. It was the size of a big screen because that's what it was, a 40-inch flat-screen TV. And finally, it was a job application that led police in Gillette, Wyoming, to round up the man who'd shoplifted from a local store twice in one day. In his first raid on the store, he lifted a pair of sunglasses and ammunition. A few hours later, he was back to steal two more pairs of sunglasses and to fill out a job application. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for shopping my sponsors and using the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.